Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. Welcome to Trial and Medical Error. In this week's episode, we talk with attorney John Perkoski. John is a phenomenal personal injury and medical malpractice lawyer with the law firm of Og, Murphy, and Perkoski. John has obtained dozens of verdicts and settlements in excess of $1 million. You would never know it because of how humble and down to earth he is. In this episode, we talk with John about a record-setting $16 million jury verdict he obtained in a medical malpractice birth injury case. In our conversation, John explains the story of the case, how he approached discovery, why the case went to trial, his personal approach to opening statements, how he approached the issue of whether to call the defendant doctor in his case in chief, critical cross-exam testimony, and a compelling closing argument. If you're enjoying Trial and Medical Error, please take a second to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite platform because it motivates us to continue to create valuable content for you and others. So thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Trial and Medical Error with my trusty partner in crime, Greg Uniton. And today we are super excited to have our first guest, John Perkoski, who I don't know if this makes any sense, but I feel like is a trial lawyer's trial lawyer. John is just a kick-butt trial lawyer based here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's a named partner with his firm. John, what's the full name of the firm these days? Og, Murphy, and Perkoski. Awesome. And John is loves to try cases, a brilliant guy, although he'll say he'll demure and be very humble, but he's just an awesome trial lawyer. He's not afraid to try cases. And we're going to talk today about a spectacular... $16 million jury verdict that he obtained just a few months ago in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, to find out about what happened to the case, the things that led to a verdict like that, and learn a little bit, or hopefully a lot bit, from John about how he approaches cases, how he approached this case, different trial techniques or theories that he feels work for him, because John, you have tried a lot of cases. So uh, John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here, man. Brendan, Greg, thanks for having me. Love to be here. So, Greg, just jump in and trample over me as you want to do whenever you feel like it when I'm going too long. But, John, tell us a little bit about yourself. I always kind of wonder amongst ourselves how we wound up in this kind of bizarre profession of being trial lawyers. What is your story? I mean, how did you wind up where you are? I actually think I have a pretty interesting story in, in that regard. Uh, I'm a Pittsburgh native. I went to Bucknell University for undergrad graduated from college, and I found myself in Chicago working for a commercial insurance company that I couldn't stand what I did. And I decided after a year or so of that I was going to go to law school. I went to DePaul out in Chicago, and I went at night. So I'm working this day job in an insurance company and um, going to law school at night, these long, crushing days. And I think it was my second year. It's a four-year program. It's my second year. And at that point, I started thinking, what kind of law do I really want to do? I know nothing about law practice. I got to think of something. And um, it just so happened that I was in evidence class with Professor Kylie. And it's one of the six o'clock at night, class goes to like 9.15 or 9.30 after a long day of work. And I'm in an auditorium with like 120 people, students. 
And Professor Kylie starts the class. He goes, I have an announcement to make. He says, um, one of our esteemed alumni has funded or endowed a torch symposium here at the law school. I've been honored to be the first chair of this torch symposium. It's been created at the school. We were having a meeting earlier this week, and he said he happened to need a law clerk. Anybody interested, come see me after class. Well, three and a half hours roll by. Guess how many people walked up to see Professor Kylie at 9.30 at night? One. That's hard to believe. I was the only one that went up and I said, Professor Kylie, I'm interested. He hands me a slip of paper with a name and a number on it and says, give them a call tomorrow. I did that. And within a couple days, I'm sitting in one of the main partners' office of what, if you're familiar with it, was Clifford Law Offices. Clifford Law Offices is one of the most prominent, largest personal injury law firms in the city of Chicago. Two-minute conversation interview. If you want to be a clerk, you can be one of our clerks. So next thing you know, I'm a law clerk in the most prominent personal injury firm in the city of Chicago. And I spent roughly two years there clerking. They were the type of PI firm that if there's a plane crash, they've got 10, 20, or half, 50% of the plane victims. Hmm. Yeah, the victims. It's the kind of cases they do. Major med mal cases, major construction action cases. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I ultimately moved back here to Pittsburgh, where I'm from. And um, I was doing corporate work at one of our big firms here in town, which is a way to get back to Pittsburgh. And a colleague of mine joined the, this law firm that I'm at now, doing employment, plaintiff's employment law. And when she got the job, I said to her, hey, I really liked being a clerk at a PI firm. If they ever have an opening, would you let me know? And sure enough, six months later, I get a call from now Judge Ignelzi saying we have an opening. I got your name from so-and-so. I interviewed and I've been a PI lawyer for the past 23 years. That's awesome. That's a really great story. Yeah. And take us, I mean, so what did you say, 23 years, John, you've been a trial lawyer with the firm? I joined in 2001. And I know you do a lot of medical negligence cases, but over the years, I mean, you've tried a lot of other types of cases too, right? I have. The majority are malpractice cases, but yeah, I've tried some major construction accident cases, some major auto cases. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Our partner one time made a, an offhanded comment during one of our meetings, and he said that he felt that the trial, like essentially trying a medical malpractice case was different. And so there were trial lawyers that would try non-medical negligence cases, and then there were trial lawyers that would try medical negligence cases. Do you feel that there's a distinction in that sense? I mean, if you're a trial lawyer and you've got the general qualities, do you think that there's some that can only try non-med mouths, and then there's ones that should only be trying med mouths? And that's kind of a weird question, but it just always stuck out to me. I actually think that trying med mouths are harder than a slip and fall or an auto case because of the nature of the defendant. In terms of whether you can, if you are an extremely detail-oriented trial lawyer, I think you can do both equally well. If you're more of a thematic person and don't know the minutia of the law or of the medicine, for example, I do think it's harder trying med mal cases. There's a difference. There are a lot of good trial lawyers that can pick up a file a week before and walk into a courtroom and just have this personality and they force a personality and can try a case. 
I think they're harder to succeed, though, in a Med-Mal because of how detail-oriented they are, what good witnesses their experts are, what good witnesses the defendants are. You raised something that I wanted to plan to get into you a little bit later once we get into the actual Latham trial. We'll jump into here in just a second. But first off, I'll say as a background, I've been telling this to everybody, but Keith Mitnick, a prominent lawyer down Morgan & Morgan in Florida, tried a gazillion different cases, has said repeatedly that the hardest type of case to try is tobacco litigation just because of the machine that you deal with of the onslaught of motions and so forth. But he said, far and away, the hardest case to win at trial is a medical negligence case against an individual doctor. I think for the same reasons you just said, it's the nature of the defendant. People like doctors. I like doctors. They're trying to help. They're not trying to hurt people, generally speaking. It's a big uphill battle. And I guess my pivot to you is, so generally speaking, when you're going into, in this case, involved individual doctors, how do you approach addressing in your overall, just how you handle the case, dealing with that sort of halo effect or the love, generally speaking, the belief that most people have that these are good people that are trying to help and they weren't trying to hurt. How do you reframe or orient the case to give your client, the patient, a better chance? I'm not sure if I've cracked that. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, and this is something I was going to allude to, and it's something that I deal with in my opening up front, because you're right. I mean, you're going up against individuals that are highly educated, tend to present well, they're articulate, and their sole purpose is to help people, as opposed to the CEO who's profit-driven and didn't take make certain changes in a factory or a drunk driver who's going through a speeding or something like that. It's something I think I, in all my med mouths, I actually try to weave in in the beginning of my case in my opening. And, and I actually address that role between patient and doctor. And it works especially well in a case like this where I present my patient as extremely vulnerable. They don't know what's wrong with them, but they are turning over, whether it be themselves or their loved one or their baby, they're turning over what is most dear, what is most precious, what is most entrusted to them, their well-being or the well-being of their baby or their loved one. And they're there just simply to say, I'm here, help me, please take care of me. And that's kind of the way I kind of put my client as best I can on some kind of emotional equal footing. I'm turning over what's most important to me to you. I don't know what's wrong with me. Help me. That's the only way I know how to try to like break that down because I'm not sure I have a good answer to that, Brendan. And it sounds, just to kind of butt in here, it almost sounds like you're embracing the fact that the halo effect is out there, that we all respect doctors and they are very smart and responsible and credible people in general, right? And I think probably your goal then is during the course of the trial is to show the jury in little ways that you can through cross-examination and just the theme of your case and great expert testimony that this particular doctor is pretending to be that wonderful, credible, responsible doctor. In this particular case, it's a facade. So, well, I think we'd both like to hear a lot more about the facts of the case. Yeah, John, can you give us a summary, sort of a, a nutshell description for listeners about what this case involved, how it came to you, who the players were, and what the claims were. It's a medical malpractice, wrongful death case. It is a stillborn case. It was the death of a baby in her 36th week. More specifically, it's, as you drill down into malpractice, it was a failure to recognize and diagnose that the mother had severe preeclampsia. 
and we can get into the details of what that is as we get into some of the discovery in the case. But it required immediate admission of the mother and delivery of the baby. And that didn't happen, and, and the baby died. So we had a wrongful death, survival claims, which were allowed under Pennsylvania that were pending. The defendants were, um, well, my clients were a happily married couple. My plaintiff, the mother, she'd had a child many, many, many couple decades earlier, but this was her going to be her second child. And the defendants was a, uh, a local obstetrical practice, in particular, two obstetricians, Dr. Vigder and a Dr. Youngdahl, and their practice, and then the health system. This practice was part of a smaller health system that's based in the Beaver County, which is near Pittsburgh. Wait, John, was it a single event with the negligence that you were focusing on in the case? Was it a single event, like a single admission to the emergency department, or just was it something that played out over the course of multiple, perhaps, outpatient visits? Everything happened in a five-day period. It involved roughly four or five interactions, either on the phone, in office, or in the labor and delivery unit at the local hospital that played out over five days. And there were like four or five interactions over a five-day period where the diagnosis was missed. Mm, Okay. And John, what is, for those uh, listeners who are unfamiliar with the condition, what is preeclampsia and what is the danger it poses to mom or baby? Preeclampsia is a a complication that is associated with pregnancies. It falls under the general category of a, a hypertensive disorder. We know that women, when they're pregnant, can develop diabetes. That's called gestational diabetes. We also know that women can become hypertensive during pregnancy. That is called gestational hypertension. Preeclampsia is when you combine that hypertensive onset with organ damage to the mother, whether that be dysfunction of the kidney, the liver, decreased platelets, pulmonary edema, any organ system where it's starting, that hypertension is starting to impact an organ system. The reason it's a for lack of a better word, a medical emergency, is that when it starts affecting the organs, that puts the wife's, the the mother's life in jeopardy and obviously the well-being of the baby in jeopardy. And while we all know that pregnancies are supposed to go as long as they can for the development of the fetus, the baby, preeclampsia is such a significant risk of harm to the mother and child that the guidelines say you can take them as early as 34 weeks. And what is the treatment if it is timely diagnosed and recognized? If preeclampsia occurs before 34 weeks, they do try hypertensive management and some treatments to try to accelerate the growth of the baby, i.e. steroids for the development of the lungs of the baby, but you're monitoring the baby. But once you get to 34 weeks and we have a preeclamptic mother, you just take the baby. C-section. You don't wait 35, 36, 37, 38 weeks, or even try to get to term at 40. The treatment is you take the baby. And if you're before 34 weeks, you at least try to stabilize the mother so you can get to 34. And was this a case where the doctors missed warning signs or just didn't perform the testing they needed to do to realize preeclampsia was present and diagnose it or a mix of both of those things? It was a complete failure to even to really assess the mother and even recognize that there was even a hypertensive episode occurring that wasn't on their radar. John, as you think back on it, when family first comes to you, was the reason they came to you simply because this horrible outcome had occurred or was there any 
anything else that had tipped them off that maybe something substandard occurred, like a doctor or a nurse had told them, hey, I think you might want to look into this with a lawyer. Did they get a letter? Anything like that? As we get into some of the facts, the facts I thought were egregious enough that it was obvious to my family that they thought that something had, that medical care had not been appropriate themselves. What got them to me is after the loss of their child, they went to uh, therapy, some group sessions that involved people that had lost children. It just so happened that when they were at one of these grieving meetings, they met a family that I had represented years and years before who had lost a baby under a similar fashion. But they had not received any type of notification or anything from the, the practice or the health system or anybody personally in the medical profession that said, listen, this could have been avoided or shouldn't have happened. Uh, It was their own gut feeling. And then meeting another family that had lived through something similar. So can you take those who are, you know, maybe looking to get involved in medical malpractice or not as familiar with it and, or teach Greg and I, they come to you, obviously you're going to start by getting the medical records and evaluating them you know, where, walk us through where you go from there to get into, you know, certificate of merit, filing a complaint, getting into discovery. Anytime I meet with a family on phone or in person, if my antenna, my red flag goes up, I explain to them that we now are going to go on a long potential journey. And that is, let's get the medical records. I have a nurse that works with us. The nurse reviews the records. I review the records. We tend to caucus the case here at my law firm. Do we like this case? Strengths and weaknesses. And in, in Pennsylvania, you can't file the lawsuit until you get a certificate of merit or essentially a, a statement from a physician, essentially verifying that this case has some degree of merit. I went to an OB, an obstetrician expert initially, and uh, had the case, submitted the records to him. We had a long conversation up front, got the certificate of merit, and that gave me the green light almost two years from the date of the baby's death to file the civil action. And general theory of the case essentially was just complete failure to what work up, evaluate the patient, let alone make a diagnosis and treat the patient, something in that realm? Correct. And then you walk us through a little bit, because we want to mostly focus on the trial, but take us through the discovery process. What was your approach? How sort of which depositions? Because in cases like this, I imagine, you know, serial visits serial missed opportunities, different entities, different doctors, support staff, and so forth. How did you approach who you wanted to talk to and speak to under oath? I told you it was a series of interactions with this practice over roughly a five-day period. It was clear from the onset that there was one obstetrician that was most involved over this five-day period. It had begun with Miss Latham calling into the practice on a Sunday with concerns of symptoms she was having. The obstetrician that responded on call is the one that ultimately directed her to the hospital that afternoon. That obstetrician was also the physician that was at the hospital, as we'll discuss in a little bit. My client was sent back for additional monitoring roughly five days later. The only physician that was really involved on the front and back end. So in my mind, this case was going to start and end with that particular obstetrician. I named a second obstetrician, one of her colleagues, because when you get into birthing baby cases and we talk about fetal monitoring, that colleague of hers had read 
fetal tracings regarding that last interaction with my client. So that person was named as well. But it was clear that this case was going to start and end with obstetrician number one. That's really where the focus of the case was. So did you, were you able to streamline the case, it sounds like? And I mean, did you have to take a ton of depositions in this case? I actually thought that it was going to potentially be a one deposition case, this doctor, because the other obstetrician had not actually seen the patient at all and only just done a read or a subsequent interpretation of some fetal monitoring strips. As I got into the case, after I deposed the target obstetrician, the case took on a, a second layer and that involved nursing care at the hospital that my patient was sent to. But I, I'm glad I did. Obviously, I, I only had one doctor to start with and it ended up having a second layer of depositions. It sounds like as you're doing discovery and taking depositions, you have kind of two components to the case. You have the failure to diagnose preeclampsia, and then you have this issue with the fetal heart monitor strips. Can you just explain to everyone what are fetal heart monitor strips and how they were relevant to your case, if they were? And then like, how did you reconcile these two different aspects of the case, a failure to diagnose preeclampsia with the fetal heart monitor part? Because obviously the baby's inside the womb, we don't, doctors don't have the ability to examine the baby by palpating the baby, listening to the baby crier, you know, that kind of thing, uh, checking the baby's temperature. So the a primary way of non-invasively monitoring the well-being of the baby, besides intermittent ultrasounds, is you essentially, it's the equivalent of like an EKG that you get when you go to, if you think you're having chest pain, it's an electrical device that goes around the woman's abdomen or belly. And what it does is it tells you the heart rate of the baby. And there's a lot that you can know about the baby's well-being regarding not only what the baby's heart rate is, but the changes in the baby's heart rate. And that is probably one of the best ways in which obstetricians can monitor a child, which they obviously can't monitor otherwise. Fortunately, in my case, the fetal monitoring at the very back end that was the interpretation was suspect wasn't a focus of my case. I'm glad it's not because if anybody has done birth injury cases, they know that these fetal monitoring, these fetal tracings are very subjective and you can have, they'll, the defense will tell you 10 obstetricians can look at the same tracings and come up with 10 different conclusions of whether they're tracings that are concerning or not concerning. And it's a rabbit hole that I don't like going down because they're hard to win when you've got these battle of the experts and nobody really knows what that tracing says. <laughs> um, so it didn't have a big role in my case, but uh, that's what a fetal tracing is. And, but that's also the problem with trying birth injury cases during, let's say, a woman in labor is they talk about the tracings go bad, but a lot of times those tracings are subjective. Even in my trial, between my own experts and the defense experts, there were discrepancies on was that acceleration or was it prolonged or you know, when did it start and that kind of thing. And that's a slippery slope that as a trial lawyer in malpractice birth cases, I sometimes try to avoid. It really had nothing to do with the diagnosis of severe preeclampsia because it really only focuses on the baby's well-being, not whether the disease process is present that could be affecting mom or baby. Oh, great. Okay. So you just focused on preeclampsia and yeah, I did the not. fetal heart monitors were sort of just like a relevant side issue, but not something the jury felt that they had to understand of ultimately right. to find in your favor. Okay. John, what was the, would you say the key evidence you developed in lead up to trial? Was it already pretty much laid out 
in the medical records like it sometimes is in these cases? Or you know, was the deposition of the key defendant doctor critical? What did you feel was your strongest part of the case as you're heading toward trial? I thought the deposition of that primary obstetrician was the entire case. And I was able to establish a couple different facts. As I mentioned, we've got a five-day period where these events happened. And and it started with, again, a a phone call to the practice because my client woke up with double vision that day, concerned about why she's seeing double. She called the practice, gets her call back from the obstetrician. Very brief phone call, but says, you need to go immediately to the labor and delivery unit. And my client does. Shows up 15 minutes later. Unfortunately, she's there for a total of maybe 50 minutes to an hour, and they send her home. More specifically, that same doctor sent her home. Also, without coming in to see her or calling in to at least speak to her. So she gets sent to a hospital and then discharged without a physician evaluating or speaking to her. The discharge was, you need to follow back up in the office for your next prenatal appointment. Just so happened that my my client was a high-risk pregnancy to start with. Her next, she was seeing the obstetrician practice two times a week at that point in her pregnancy. So Tuesday, two days later, she shows up at the practice for her next visit. Again, not seen by a doctor, not spoken to by a doctor. Sent home and told to follow up again for her next visit. Three days later on a Friday, she comes in, baby's placed on the fetal monitor, the baby's heart rate is tachycardic, elevated to a significant level. Doctor doesn't speak to her. Doctor does not come in and evaluate her. Instead, a physician assistant is notified of this change by the tech who put the mom on the monitor and says, you need to go back to the hospital ASAP. My client does immediately. She's there for, again, 60 minutes, 70 minutes, and is discharged and sent home Again, neither being seen by a physician or spoken to by a physician. I was able to confirm in the deposition that the obstetrician that was the focus of the case never saw my patient. This high-risk woman who's now developing a life-threatening pregnancy complication, despite sending her to the hospital once, having discharged her and then her being sent back there a second time where she was the attending physician the second time and sent her again, sent her home again and never saw her. Perhaps most damaging I learned is that whenever my client went to the practice the first time after the first visit, that doctor was in the office that morning and didn't see her. And when my client was sent back to the hospital the second time on that Friday, I was able to establish that that same obstetrician was on the unit, on the labor and delivery floor at the same time my client, my mother, was there and never went into the room to talk to her. So who's seeing the patient? She was seen during that critical life-threatening period by only the labor and delivery obstetrical nurses at the hospital on those two visits and by a nurse practitioner slash PA during her two office visits. I have two questions and a point. One is, I remember when Greg and I first you know, talked to you about this case and 
there's a related one of those great trial moments that you had with the obstetrician that kind of relates to this that I want to make sure that we talk about. But my two questions are first, what was the primary defendant doctor's rationale or reason for why she didn't see the patient on those visits? Why not come in or certainly when she's in the office, why she wouldn't have at least face-to-face evaluated the patient? The primary rationale was that the complaints, some of the findings didn't match up to what I expected preeclampsia to be. But two, that nursing staff on the at the hospital. They are experienced, excellent nurses that I work with. Had it been conveyed to me that there was a concern, I would have seen the patient. And you know, so if certain things had been reported by the patient, or if certain things had been conveyed to me by the staff, either at my office or by at the labor and delivery unit, well, at the end, she said, I would have gotten involved. Kind of passing the buck onto the staff a little bit. And especially... When I started, again, this is a hypertensive disorder. As my client is having increasing abnormal blood pressures from first hospital visit to office appointment to the second hospital visit, the obstetrician in her deposition essentially pointed the finger at the nurses at the hospital saying, I actually didn't know about those blood pressures. Had I known about those at that point, well, that would have changed things. Notwithstanding the fact that she was on the unit and she had equal access to my client's chart. I should have and could have learned what those blood pressures are before her making the decision to discharge my client. She put pressure on the nurses to say that should have actually been brought to my attention as opposed to me asking the questions before discharging. Hey, what's her blood pressure? What are her vitals? <laughs> Which she could have done, but didn't either. So John, the phenomenon I notice sometimes in the cases we work up is When you have behavior like what you just described by the defendant doctor, that is sort of so egregious. I mean, I find sometimes that it can almost have a uh, counter effect in that this idea of attribution bias and you have jurors who are skeptics or cynics and they say, well, hey, wait a second. If this care was so bad and no doctor's coming to see you patient, Shouldn't you go and get a second or third opinion? Shouldn't you go to a different practice group? Did you have any concerns or did you take steps to deal with anything along those lines where there are cynical jurors who might say, okay, yeah, the care of that doctor was pretty poor, but patient, you've got to take care of yourself. Why didn't you go somewhere else? Why didn't you force the issue? That is a real issue that I think we face in these trials because we think it's awful medical care. But jurors are skeptical that that kind of bad care can actually happen. That can't be. There's got to be some other explanation. I think what helped me was I thought my jury just had difficulty accepting the very common sense layperson relation to, wait a minute, everyone's agreeing that this is a high-risk pregnancy. She's had no problems in her pregnancy up until this point, and now she's having back-to-back-to-back-to-back interactions for issues, and nobody sees her. So we can dispute about the context or the severity of her complaints or symptoms or how abnormal her blood pressures are, but I had in my back pocket, at least in this situation, I think the jury thought this woman was entitled to have a doctor 
sit in front of her and actually ask her a question. And I had nothing in the medical records to show that really anybody did any kind of full assessment of this woman. So did you find yourself toying with making this case about a system failure as opposed to individual failures on the part of the nurses and the obstetrician, just like communication errors and general supervisory errors. This seems like something that kind of goes to the heart of what should be managed by administration of a practice group in a relatively large system, healthcare system. How did you tailor your claims? Were they, were they individual claims of professional negligence or did you try to install that element of systemic negligence? The systemic theme that I think came out in my trial is obstetrician practices treat pregnancies on autopilot. Mom comes in, the progress or office note is three lines, and mom's sent on her way. Mom comes in many times, no physician sees her, that lower level providers see this patient and she's sent on her way. And then I think what we established is that a reason why they're on autopilot is because 99 out of 100 times, nothing goes wrong. And they're not prepared for that one time when something can, because they've got this built in, all right, well, she's got another appointment in two days. All right, well, the baby's still breathing and the heart rate's normal. All right, well, then we're fine and we'll see her in two days. And just like kicking the can down the road because nine times out of 10, nothing goes wrong. And if you do that week in, week out, Month, year in, year out as an obstetrician, and things don't go sideways very, very often. It's real easy, I think, to get into that mindset that all right, it's not really an issue. I think that is the approach I think that the obstetricians in my case took, that, all right, I understand that 99% of the time this isn't going to be anything, but maybe this is the one. And the only way you're going to know that is if you actually stop your practice of what you normally do and go see that patient. Maybe this is that one out of, a, out of 99 John, the last um, topic I want to hit before we get into the trial is you've laid this case out. Obviously, from your vantage point, our vantage point, it sounds very damning against the other side. Seems like just a slam dunk case. And obviously, you got this unbelievable verdict. So it was a very strong case. But there are always defenses. There are always arguments on the other side. What were the primary defenses in this case? Which ones were you most concerned with and what were you dealing with that, and whether that's what led to going to trial or whatever, what was the other side saying? They had two defenses. The primary defense was, listen, the, what we will call the classic signs of preeclampsia. They nitpicked the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia. And I want to talk about that in a little more detail, but in the other defense was, and this was somewhat of a head scratching defense to me is everyone agrees it's a high-risk pregnancy. Well, you know what? The problem with high-risk pregnancies is sometimes these babies just die. In other words, a risk of high-risk pregnancies, you just get a baby that doesn't make it. Notwithstanding, everybody agreed that this was a healthy, normally developing baby up to the 35th week. And we all agreed on the autopsy that there, this is a, a normally developed baby when she died. And so they're saying in this little window of time, I understand this is the United States. I understand we've got the best health care in the world. But you know what? It's the crap happens defense. Sometimes these babies just die. 
And we don't know why. Well, we know why. There's high risks. And so we never know which ones just aren't going to make it. I thought that was a very dangerous defense to make the 12 people to say, yeah, babies sometimes just die at 37 weeks. Because I think most people know if you're going to lose a child, it's that miscarriage at eight weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks. But when you're the mother picking out the crib and the baby clothes and you're three weeks away, people aren't expecting babies to die then, just spontaneously for no underlying reason. (laughs) But that was our two defenses. But the main defense on liability was this really wasn't preeclampsia. That was the heart of the case. Where the doctor was reasonable in not being concerned that it was preeclampsia, right? Right. So you wind up, I mean, again, very strong facts. And I'm always sort of talking with different people about um, the luck. There's multi-levels of luck that are involved in getting a great verdict. And one of them is that the other side makes a poor decision to go to trial when you have very, very compelling facts and they're telling you, no, you know, we're, we're heading in there and that you're even given the opportunity to try a case like this. There's some weird luck involved in that. Although, although of course, I'm sure for your client's sake and whether there's some vindication, whether there's a positive feeling, you always worry about the trauma of having to relive it and hear all this different stuff through a trial. And, you know, in a lot of these cases, a settlement would be much preferred, you know, so that you don't have to put people, they can get their closure, be done with this. So I imagine that was probably somewhat stressful for the family, but in your estimation, why did a case with such strong facts for your side like this wind up having to be tried? If you could speculate. I'm almost hundred percent certain I know why. There was no offer to settle the case before trial. It was a no offer case. And as frequently happens in no offer cases in MedMal cases in Pennsylvania, it is because the physician has refused to consent or allow her insurance company to try to settle and resolve the claim. When I deposed that obstetrician, I completely understand and sympathize with physicians who have had serious allegations made against them to be upset. They may care very deeply and strongly about their practice and taking care of patients, and now they're being alleged to have made a mistake or or injured or caused one of their patients to die. And I don't expect them all to walk into the depositions happy and glad to meet me. But this particular defendant, not the first, it could be the last, but she was angry. She was venomous in her deposition. And as another like personal twist or level to this, my family lived in the same neighborhood as the obstetrician. And when we filed suit, my client would report to me that the obstetrician and her husband, when they'd, go, or when they'd go for walks in the evening, would just walk by their house and just glare, glare at them. And they were clearly upset about it. And there was a personal animus regarding, even though this, woman, this family lost their child, there was a personal animus. And even though when I did the deposition of, there's some things that happened in the deposition that made me convinced that this is a case that never should see a courtroom, I also had a concern that this case would have to see a courtroom because it was beyond my control. Didn't matter what the facts were. I had a defendant doctor that was not going to consent and agree to settle the case. And when she didn't, her colleague similarly then refused to consent because she didn't think she was the primary party responsible for this. And the health system refused to pay at that point. It was a domino effect. So my client didn't want to go to court. I know there there are some real big hitters they like to test the waters with a lot of money on the line. 
My client wanted this closure, wanted it behind her. We just never got that opportunity to see if it could be resolved. Yeah, John, I, I think Greg and I are the same way that you're looking out for the best interests of your client. And most of the people that we represent in these tragic cases are not looking for their day in court if it can be avoided with a reasonable settlement. And yeah, I think we approach it the same way. It's like you go to trial and you do the best you can. And when we all obsess over the awesome aspects of trial, but I don't want to say it's a last resort, but yeah, we get in those situations where it just seems reckless what some people do and saying no to insane amounts of money because of some other thought process. So I'm not surprised and I'm glad to hear you say that because that's the way that Greg and I think about it as well. So let's pivot now to trial. Who was your judge? What was the court? And tell us a little bit about the jury selection process. We were in Beaver County. The judge in Beaver County that tends to oversee and try most of the medical malpractice cases in Beaver County is Judge Ross. He's an experienced trial lawyer, former prosecutor, experienced trial lawyer in his own right before he took the bench. Very no-nonsense judge, very intelligence judge, very experienced both trial lawyer and trial judge. That was who our judge was. I've tried cases in front of previously, but um, he oversees jury selection personally and he gets involved in the jury selection process. A problem with trying cases like this in Beaver County is A, it tends to be a more conservative county, comparatively. B, the health system that I had named as a defendant is the largest employer in that county. And it's based in that county. And it's hard to find a potential juror who, <laughs> almost all of them have treated at the hospital in the issue in this case, but they all have neighbors, themselves, immediate family, children that work at that health system, work in that health system or work at that hospital, or know those, know the practice that I named as defendants as well. Judge Ross did a wonderful job trying to ferret out, excuse those juries for cause based on a potential bias that had strong relationships with the health system so that they're not on the panel. But that was the big issue. Every court in, in Pennsylvania seems to do it differently. How did Judge Ross allow you to carry out the jury selection process? Was it big group? Was it individual? Was it judge-led, lawyer-led? He does both. He gets uh, 80 people in a big courtroom. And then he goes through 20 or 40 general questions, and 25, 30 questions. He's going to ask the entire room. And everybody raises their hands as he goes through question one all the way to question 40. And we scramble and say, all right, juror number 25 raised their hand to these six questions. Then he puts them all back in another room and we bring in individually every juror who answered any question in the positive, raised their hand to any of the questions. And then we do an individual voir dire process. You're doing double the work. And given that we end up individually voir direing, like 95% of those people anyway. And I would never let on my jury if I had the choice, a juror that never raised their hand to any question ever. So I don't know what their feelings are about anything. Both us and the defense lawyers made up a reason that we needed to actually individually wear forward to them based on some information they filled out on a, a questionnaire. So everybody gets questioned individually. So you might as well just dispense with going through 30 questions in front of a whole room and just bring them all in individually. But the good news is at the end of the day, Judge Ross lets you individually voir dire pretty much every potential juror. And so it's a lengthy process. Any limits on the extent to which you can 
on that individual basis interact or question the juror? We were allowed to submit questions in advance that we wanted to ask, roughly a half dozen or so, and defense could do the same. And then he's got his standard 15 or 20. So, and then every juror provides a, a questionnaire. So you've got a lot that you can explore. So there isn't a whole lot of limits, no. Were there any particular traits or characteristics or demographics that you were looking for in your juror members or that you were looking to uh, find as part of deselecting a juror? No. Brendan, I know this doesn't dovetail with you. you know, I know that you are a, a very strong component of a focus groups and, and jury selection. I wasn't preferring mothers over non-mothers. I had women on my jury that had never get, gone through childbirth. I had, I think, four or five men out of the 12 jurors. I had some very educated. I had some non-educated. It was a, a very diverse mix. And I, um, there wasn't any theme, I think, that I was looking for. So was it more just kind of feel like you felt like, hey, I could talk with this person and they might hear me out? Exactly. I'm looking to who seemed receptive or open. And I thought I had the facts on my case. So, you know, I was just looking for personalities, how they responded to questions. Can you take us through your approach to opening? And what I'm curious about is I have a a basic sort of approach that I mostly follow for opening statements. Obviously, the facts, the way I tell the story and so forth differ from case to case, but the overall outline is pretty similar. Are you somebody that approaches it case by case, or do you have kind of a set outline that you use? How do you go about putting your opening statements together? If I can just go on a tangent for one second. Please. We love tangents on this show. We talked about how, you know, luck and what, you know, how that can play a role. And this case never would have been tried had they not forced me to try the case. This case almost got sidetracked before we got started in this sense. Something similar happened to you during the pandemic. But um, obviously we're trying this before the pandemic had officially ended. And there's a risk of COVID. And so we tried, we picked the jury, went the entire day. And... The judge actually had an off day the next day, so we were going to start two days later, okay? And we understand that COVID could interrupt this trial at any point in time, before anything happens. The judge could get COVID two days before trial. Judge could get COVID in the middle of the trial. I could come down with COVID. Key witnesses can come down with COVID, which is just a nightmare scenario. Well, we pick our jury. Two days later, we show up for opening statements. And we've got two defense lawyers there because the two obstetricians actually had different insurance carriers. Um, So they had two different lawyers. But the second chair, the second lawyer, the assistant lawyer for one of the defendants isn't there, who was going to help try the case and who had been there during jury selection. And his first chair, the lawyer that was going to try the case with him, pulls me aside and says, we got a problem. He's got COVID. Now, I just spent an entire day in a courtroom with that guy. And he was huddled at a table 10 feet, 15 feet from me with all the other attorneys involved in the case, huddling with the physician doctors in close proximity to us, them, the judge, not so much close to the jury, but we're all exposed. You pay all these experts money to put their practice aside, to travel, to testify. Um, We've got all this preparation in. For all I know, I've got COVID. The judge could get COVID. But now I know we have a known exposure literally two days ago. We have to let the judge know. 
Judge says, all right, well, what do you want to do? You want to continue this trial or you want to go forward? Collectively to the parties. Pulled my client aside and it's really for the first time. I said, I don't know what to tell you in my representation of you. If we go forward, we may have a mistrial in one, two, three, or four days and have to do this whole thing all over again because we've got a known exposure. I said, or we can stop now and just kick this to whatever date he's willing to reschedule it in four months, six months, or eight months down the road. I can't tell you what's going to happen. I don't know. And my client said, it's been five years. Let's go. Let's try the case. So we all go back to the judge and say, we're willing to go forward. But the judge goes, well, no, here's the next step, guys. We got to tell this jury that they've been exposed. And this jury you just picked, well, we don't know if half of them are going to opt out and we got a mistrial anyways. Again, sometimes luck is on your side. Judge calls the jury in, explains what happened. Not a jury blinked, not, a, not one juror. We had the same jury we picked two days earlier. But that case could have never gone to trial at that time for either initially or a mistrial five days in. Yeah, it's miraculous for a number of uh, reasons that it, it worked out that way. And it's nice that you can look back and say, oh, what a nice story that would be. But it could have gone, you know, 10 other directions that oh, would have been disastrous. It could have been disastrous. So I'm sorry, you had asked me about openings. Though. No, no, I'm, I'm glad you shared that because I think it just kind of, I mean, that's the aspect of trying these cases. I mean, people don't, they you just think about, oh, the facts, the evidence do this, but there's all this logistical components of it. And there's all these factors that, impact whether the case goes, how the case goes, that have right. nothing to do that with anything you ever could have planned for as the lawyer. We're all, for the most part, I think, kind of control freaks, but you just have to recognize that there are things that are going to be totally off the wall that are going to happen. You just have to soldier on. But yeah, my question was, I'm always fascinated how different people, because I hate the saying, but that saying there's more than one way to skin a cat. And I don't like dogma when it comes to trying cases. I think there are so many lawyers that do it so many different ways effectively and when. And so I'm curious, in your opening, I mean, what was your structure? How do you approach it? Some people are very started focusing on the, you know, the bad actions of the defendant and then roll it into the plaintiff's damages, vice versa. People that start introducing who the plaintiff is, talking a lot about the plaintiff. What are your sort of heuristics or rules of thumb you apply to your opening and specifically this one? Most of my openings are very similar in this regard. My opening in my mind, because it's my first opportunity to talk to this, and I'm the first one to address the jury. My opening always has to have a hook. I don't introduce myself. I don't start going into facts. I start with a hook. I have to grab their attention immediately. So I let them know that this is about a baby that died because doctors didn't do their job. And I want to get there in some form or fashion, get their attention. Then I go into the story. But I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever given an opening, even in some complex cases, longer than 20 to 25 minutes. I don't want to bore this story. I don't want to lose them in the opening. I want to hit them, grab their attention, focus on the facts, and I want to promise this to them. Here is what you're going to hear. And here is why this is wrong. And... I am not a full-fledged reptile proponent, but I do, and especially in this case, I did incorporate that. This is about the safety and well-being of a woman and her child and how their actions put them at risk and how, listen, that's not how you take care of 
pregnant women in Beaver County. Can't let that happen. Because every one of those people have a granddaughter, a daughter, or a spouse that's going to get pregnant and is going to be in that hospital. And so there's that little bit of a reptile switch that this is about us, not just about this particular patient. I memorize my openings because they're only 15, 20 minutes long. I write them out word for word. And it's the only thing, only thing that I really practice and do verbatim. That's my opening. 15, 20 minutes, facts, make them prom. You have to be willing to back up your promise. You're going to, this is what you're going to hear. And when you hear it, this is what it's going to tell you. And this is why you have to enter a verdict. But it's a hook at first. John, do you take time in your opening to undermine or put in context the primary defenses they'll hear? Not really. No. I want to win that first battle, get them on my side, and then I'll deal with the defenses later. It's not a long opening, so I tend not to deal with that. I want them, when they're left hearing my story, to shake their heads going, oh, this is awful. If I could just get them, forget about like counter evidence. They're going to say this and we're going to do that. No, I just want them to relate to my client, feel for my client, and then I'll prove to them during the next five or eight days why I'm right. Talking of reptile, now edge and so forth, um, did you use any type of rule to frame your case around or anything like that? Or did you more do your hook and then get into the story and let it kind of speak for itself? It's the hook, the story, and I weave in during that story, in this case, the theme. And that is, you can't let a high-risk pregnancy woman go through over a five-day period, five opportunities, and never see her. It's just offensive on a base level, and you're going to learn it's poor medical care. That was my theme. It was an easy, it was, the theme screamed out. You can't have a pregnant woman that you tell to go to the hospital twice, tell to come to the practice twice, and no one see her. Right. No doctor see her. Can't happen. And that's the theme the whole time. Do you show anything or use any exhibits in your opening? I do. I tend to use some. I don't want to overload them. I'm not putting up 10, 15 exhibits. But I do try to use, because I think they expect some entertainment, some fireworks and or technology, you know, courtroom process. I put up some regarding, you know, her blood pressure readings, put some regarding, you know, her complaints of the visual disturbances. And, uh, I think I put up some about the baby in the autopsy at the end. Emphasize this is, this is the death of a, a baby that should be here celebrating her fifth birthday party. As you think back, did uh, I mean, you had two very skilled, very experienced defense counsel opposing you. Did either of them uh, in their opening uh, do the old, you know, well, what uh, Mr. Perkoski didn't tell you is this or try to belittle your personal credibility at all? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I know both these defense lawyers, they have a set routine in what they do. And I've tried cases against both of them before. They have a playbook, almost like a cookie cutter approach to it. So they're going to say the same thing in every trial, but a little bit of attack on that. But it's more about they focus on the doctors. These are doctors doing their best. You know, you're really going to hold doctors accountable for making judgments and you know, trying their best to their Hippocratic oath to help their patients. That can carry the day nine out of 10 times. These are doctors doing their best. So did you feel like you were ahead after openings? I did because A, one lawyer does this very didactic PowerPoint, 45-minute 
of like breakdown of the quality, the CVs of the experts that are going to be coming in. And just, I think after the first 15 or 20 minutes, loses the jury. The other defense attorneys more kind of like scattered, like stream of consciousness, just flowing because he doesn't have a real, real outline. And it may not be as long, but I'm not sure where he's going. That's his style. So Greg, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, yeah. So I I was just going to ask, the defense likes to highlight their experts, of course. And like you just mentioned with the PowerPoint, get into the nitty gritty of the the medicine. Did you try to prevent that from happening through the course of trial or at least prevent the jury from focusing on all the medicine during the course of trial and, and stay true to your theme as the focus of the case? I've already won the theme. They can't dispute that this woman's never seen, a physician never laid her hands on my client or even spoke to her during this five day period. I won that. It was one of the few cases where I was able to, I thought, confront them on the medicine. And I am not a big proponent in, let's say, depositions of using learned treatises, publications, to try to make my case in a deposition or even in a trial. They're dangerous because they're rarely directly on point. You're dealing with someone who's much more knowledgeable on the subject matter of this medicine than you are. And it's hard to pin them down. And if you can't pin them down and have an absolutely on point accepted treatise to impeach them with, it becomes hard. And it's really then this battle of the medicine. In this case, as wishy-washy as the ACOG guidelines can be on so many obstetrical and gynecological issues, when it comes to preeclampsia, their guidelines and the algorithm and the boxes, the tables that they have of the criteria can't be more clear. And in the deposition of that doctor, she conceded up front, I know that guideline. I'm a member of that organization. I follow that guideline. And you're absolutely right that all these things can be preeclampsia. And yes, that may have been A, B, C, D, and E. It is why I thought it was a case that should never see a courtroom. I've got the defendant essentially conceding all these things can be preeclampsia. And yes, taking the baby is what should have occurred early, delivering this baby. So I had that in my case in chief from the defendant doctor. I didn't call her in my case, but I had it such a good deposition, I read it. So now I had that and I used that in my cross for every medical expert and every, the two defendant doctors that showed up and even some of the nurses that I put on the stand. I was just going to say, so what was the theme of the defensive? If you had them on the medicine, was it still by the OB pointing the finger at the nurses? What was it? Preeclampsia is the criteria is you've got to have a blood pressure of a certain level over a certain period of time. In other words, in isolated blood pressure in and of itself may not be the first criteria met for preeclampsia, but you have to have a certain blood pressure. And then it has to be accompanied by certain findings, protein in the urine or lab results showing that there's some end organ damage, i.e. kidney dysfunction, liver dysfunction, platelets that are significantly abnormal. And what that tells you is you've got blood pressure that's now elevated and it's affecting those organs. So all I got to do is match up. Do I have hypertension? And do I have one of these other objective pieces of evidence that we have organ damage occurring in the mother, which means we got to take this baby out now? 
what they disputed was, you know, her blood pressures really weren't that bad. Yes, they're not normal, but they're not that bad. I know what the guideline says, but they aren't that bad. <laughs> and I've never seen babies die. Ladies and gentlemen, we talk about preeclampsia. Those blood pressures have to be through the roof. That's what we're concerned about. And then the other component was my client's other complaint. Because in that other criteria of organ injury is then a much more subjective symptom. All the ACOG says is visual disturbances. Well, visual disturbances mean that the organ that's being affected is the neurologic system because it's affecting your eyesight, okay? And so my client had blurry vision. So I've got elevated blood pressures and I've got blurry vision, but I don't have any of those other objective criteria that you get from laboratory studies. And so they pointed to the absence of those other criteria being positive, even though the guideline says you don't need all of them, you don't need three out of the five, you just need blood pressures and any of the following. And all you've got, Mr. Prokoski, you're claiming is some blurry vision that's only documented one time in our records. And you've got blood pressures that really aren't that bad. Oh, and by the way, Mr. Prokoski, if visual disturbances are from preeclampsia, you're not having some double vision or some blurry vision. You're having an inability to walk straight because you can't see. You're having bright flashing lights. There's blurry vision happens in pretty much all pregnant women at some point in their pregnancy. That's part and parcel with being a pregnant woman. You get blurry vision. We don't diagnose them all with preeclampsia. So these blood pressures aren't that bad. This visual disturbance you're claiming happened wasn't that profound. Couldn't have been preeclampsia. So the baby just died on its own. I was just going to ask you, I mean, so it sounds like they were making up medicine, their own medicine. They were presented with a guideline that if the jury accepted that my woman had blurry vision or visual disturbances and no one's disputing what her blood pressures are, yes, she has preeclampsia. So they had to, again, some of their experts were even authors of ACOG publications. Hmm. They disputed the organization's guidelines that they belong to and or write guidelines for meant what my client had. John, you talked about how you had this compelling, you know, you had them dead to rights on the medicine. Visually, did you try to show this to the jury, like putting an algorithm up or whatever the specific signs and symptoms of the response is, and then comparatively showing that it all lines up exactly in this case, or is it more just walking them through it in the course of an exam? I must have put up that table or that algorithm from that ACOG guideline. And the only way I could do that is, and why it was so easy for me to do that, is I had the deposition where she essentially admitted, the obstetrician, I follow this. Yes, this is accurate. This is the medicine. And so I presented all of them and I had that up and I had the blood pressures up next to it, or I had that up and I had the complaint of blurry vision up next to it. And I had the nurses, I deposed the nurses on the floor, all admit that, yes, they know that too. When you put it all together, it does match preeclampsia. So it was hard for them to dispute that other than, well, she couldn't have really had blurry vision. <laughs> John, there's a lot of um, sort of trial writings out there that opening and basically the first one or two witnesses are the key to the case. And that if the jury is with you at that point, something like 85 to 90 percent of them, their thought process on the case doesn't change. So you talked about opening. Who was your first witness and why did you call them? My first witnesses 
were a couple of the nurses because their depositions had gone extremely well in terms of what they conceded, the medicine. So now I've got the defendants conceding the medicine and a couple of my experts. I put my obstetrician expert on early in the case, sandwiched by a couple of the the nurses that I called live who had been involved in my client's care when she was sent to the hospital on those two occasions. Those were my first handful of witnesses. I think I heard you earlier say that in your case in chief, you read the defendant doctor's deposition, or at least the key sections of it, rather than calling her as on cross in your case. Is that right? That is. Just tell us, what was the thinking behind that? I generally, I know there's a different school of thought, but I generally do not call the defendant doctor in my case. If I've got a good enough deposition and I can condense it to, again, I'm not going to read an hour and a half of testimony to a jury. I'll lose them. But if I have 20 minutes, one for my prima facie evidence to get past the non-suit, but two, to let the jury know without having the doctor the opportunity to really expound and interrupt my case and get her own defenses in, in the middle of my case, I will do that. And I did that in this case. I don't think I've ever called a doctor in my case in chief. You're right. There's a big debate on that topic. What is your feeling about that? Is it just comfort level or do you have a thought as to why you don't like to call or generally just don't call the the kind of key defendant doctor in your case in chief? In all candor, early in my career, I think it was a confidence issue because cross-examination is a difficult art and you have to control a witness. And I think early in my career, as I was, I think, trying to learn and better myself in how you cross-examine especially experts or a doctor, I was a little bit reluctant to do that. Even though I feel more confident in my ability to do that, I also do think that it can interrupt the flow of your case. Again, you can't control everything in your trial, but it gives them an opportunity, the defense, to sidetrack the momentum that your case has. You want this thing to be a tidal wave. By the time they start their defense, that's my reason why. No, I think that's a super valid one. In the PAJ MedMail seminar last year, there was the show of hands and it was almost 50-50 on you know, which of us call the the defendant doctor in our case. What do you do? More often than not, we call them in our case in chief. And one of our big reasons, our teaching moment was Greg and I tried a case uh, several years ago and Greg had taken this just killer deposition of the defendant doctor and and the doctor really came off very poorly. And we felt that we would just let him, we wouldn't call him in our case in chief He'll come off as, you know, kind of an arrogant uh, jerk like he did in his deposition, and it'll be easier for us to cross-examine. Well, here, you know, Jack Quinn up in Erie, who's a great defense attorney, and the doctor, to himself, to his credit, worked really hard. And when he presented himself for the first time, he was amazing. He was so personable and down-to-earth and humble, like a 180 from what was in the deposition that Greg took. And we were probably in trouble in the case to begin with, but his presentation, the first view they're getting of this doctor was so overwhelmingly good. You know, afterwards I said to Greg, I said, never again, we are always going to have the first shot to put the doctor's, you know, testimony in them. Now, from what you said, what I think we could have done differently is I love the fact that you had this wonderful deposition to put in your case in chief. And I'm a big proponent of that, that if you've got the goods in the depot, I mean, from a control perspective, 
that's almost the best because there's still that unknown. If you call that doctor in your case in chief, they, yeah, like you said, they may take you off on a different tangent. They might quibble about things that you had them kind of dead to rights in the deposition. But if you got the depo, that's almost ideal. And we've talked about using key deposition clips of the defendant with our expert in lieu of calling them in our case in chief and so forth. But, you know, that's our rationale is to, you know, I'm all about that trial is a battle of impression more than it is logic most instances. And so that impression that they give off, I want the first impression they get of that doctor to be not as good as when their lawyer is putting them up on the pedestal and making them look terrific. That makes sense. Makes sense. So take us, we've been going for a while now, and I could go on and on about this, but tell us, take us through some of the key moments in the trial. Where do you feel, I mean, obviously case starts with great facts and you had great facts and it sounds like you were presenting them in a very compelling fashion. But I remember one, there was a great exchange, if you're willing to share that you had with the defendant, I'm assuming in the defense case that was kind of, you were obviously probably kind of feeling it at that point in the case. Things were going your way, and then you kind of get more and more opportunities, it seems, of positive things. Yeah, and Brennan, you're absolutely right, that especially in a med mal case, that momentum that I thought I had, you think that you have garnered up to that point, can switch like this when a defendant doctor present, you know, takes the stand and presents extremely well. Um, you can lose it quickly. Probably two or three moments where I think it left the jury kind of like gobsmacked, like you have no, this is not good for you. And one of them, I think, I, I think you and I, I did share this with you. Uh, when I took the deposition of the doctor, when she was on call that first interaction, and she says, you got to get to the hospital right away, okay? I went through all of the obligations, responsibilities she has for my client when she sent her there. And she's, her job as the on-call doctor is to be available and if need be to go in that hospital and, and evaluate this patient, everything about what on-call is about and what your responsibilities are. And she conceded all that. And it's, it really wasn't a dispute. When I was cross-examining her during the defense case, and again, this is a theme about no one actually saw my client. And uh, I'm taking her through that same sequence of questions about her responsibilities. It's a tactic. And again, we steal from me. We learn from each other. We steal from one another terms of what we do in trial. And one of my, and someone who taught me a lot about trying a case would do this technique sometimes. But I had a question that I thought there was no good answer she could give. And I used it in the technique that I try to only reserve if I use it at all once during a trial. And so when I'm telling her about my high-risk pregnant woman in the hospital that you just sent her to, and she lives eight minutes away, seven minutes away from this hospital, I finally, like when I'm taking her through it and they get to the crescendo, I turn to the jury. So I'm just looking at the jury. I don't even see the doctor on the stand. Don't know what she's doing. And I asked her, so tell me, what were you doing on that Sunday afternoon that was more important than coming in to evaluate this high-risk pregnancy woman that you just sent there? And I'm watching the jury. And... It's silence, 15, 20, 30 seconds of silence, which is an eternity. And the jurors, all I can see is their expression and their eyes are wide open, their mouths are open, and they're just looking at the doctor who's not saying anything. So I turn around and I face the doctor. And I mean, if looks could kill, I would not have lived through that trial. And she had been just as defiant and angry on the stand as she was in, in her deposition. I repeated the question now facing her. Maybe you didn't hear me, doctor. 
And I asked her again. And she just again, 15 seconds. And you could see the smoke coming out of her ears. And she says, I don't know what I was doing. What were you doing that afternoon? And I said, well, I know what I wasn't doing. I wasn't responsible for taking care of a high-risk pregnancy patient, was I, doctor? <laughs> and the jury was just like, head in hands, just like shaking their head. It was, it was a good moment. It was a good trial. John, you live for moments like that as trial. I mean, you'll go to your grave remembering that, like just an amazing moment. I'm so happy that you got to experience that, but I'm a little jealous of it too. But yeah, go ahead. I had one other one involving a learned treatise. And remember, for seven or eight days, they cross-examined my experts and my clients about really the, even though they didn't document or do any kind of evaluation of her visual disturbances, but, you know, minimizing, minimizing that this is, you know, her visual disturbances and how maybe this was some minor blurry vision that was so insignificant. That was their defense. And then their experts get up and say how blurry vision is not the visual, the neurologic visual disturbance for preeclampsia. It's so much beyond blurry vision. And even though ACOG only says visual disturbances, we all know that doesn't mean ordinary, like blurry vision you may experience in the, at the end of your pregnancy. And this is where sometimes, you know, homework pays off. This defendant doctor had a case pending over the border in Ohio right before my trial. And I got the deposition transcript. And it just so happened in that deposition transcript, that plaintiff's lawyer authenticated through her that there is a textbook that she uses and relies upon in, in her obstetrical cases. And it's one of the most well-known texts. It's Williams Obstetrics. It's Williams. I show her the transcript. I impeach her with it. Because I had, in advance of the trial, I'd gotten Williams. Now, it was a different medical issue in that other case. I pull Williams, which she says, she, if it's in Williams, you can rely upon it. I pull it. And when it talks about preeclampsia, it talked about the visual disturbances as just blurry vision. So it finally, I finally had in medical writing that the visual disturbances that ACOG is referring to really is just blurry vision. It took all eight days of them disputing blur blurry vision was eliminated in one exchange. I mean, I love it. I mean, it's just, again, what a, just an unbelievable moment to get to be a part of. But it was because of your hard work that, that you went that distance to get all that stuff. It pulled the curtain back on the, this is BS. I understand your expert went to Harvard or he, he teaches at, uh, at, at Columbia. Or, you know, this is BS. This is doctors protecting doctors. And it pulled back that curtain when I showed a textbook that finally explained visual disturbances are something as simple as blurry vision. That's awesome. <laughs> Did defense counsel keep going with that theme all the way into closing arguments in spite of the way you tore it up? Oh, they were, it was too late. I mean, that was like, she took the stand in like the second day before. We only had like two days of testimony left at that point. They'd already put on three other experts on that issue. They had one more to go after that, but yeah, it was over. So they were committed to it. In their choice. And they just kept digging themselves a hole. I mean, that, they did. that's what I can never quite understand. Yeah. Drunk, we've covered everything, but can you share with us some of the highlights of your closing, what you were trying to accomplish and any particularly effective arguments, whether they're the ones you've used before or ones that were unique to this case that resonated with you and you felt worked with the jury. I still have trouble remembering my, my, my closing. It's a haze still. Again, 
I'm not going to keep them very long. They were there for eight days. They'd heard the same evidence nine different ways. And I kept it brief. It was, uh, it was probably a 20, 30 minute close. I told them I kept my promise to them. You know, I put up that chart or that table from ACOG one last time and I apologized, but I had an obligation to my client to do that. And I matched it up again. And I hit my theme over and over again about this isn't appropriate care in this community of never seeing this woman. That's what you're gonna have to decide. Woman, baby dies. And she had four interactions with practice in the hospital over a five-day period. And not once did a doctor see her. You can ask yourself, is that good medical care here in Beaver County? The only trick I stole, again, we steal. We use that Always. fetal tracing that we talked about at the very beginning. Every expert had a slightly different opinion of what that fetal tracing did was. It was the fetal monitoring on the last hospital visit. My client's baby was last alive and um, known to be alive. And um, my experts all said that that was a particular prolonged deceleration, which tells me that now mom's preeclampsia, which is affecting her, because that's her blood pressure is going up, her neurologic system is being affected, is now affecting the baby. This is our objective evidence. This baby's now being impacted. And everybody's arguing that you know, what this may or may not be, but we know that baby's dead two days later. You can bet that that is an abnormal tracing. And I had some good impeachment to establish it was. But I used a line that I read from a very, very credential, a great trial lawyer a couple of decades ago. I'm assuming all birth injury lawyers now know this one. But people remember uh, John Edwards, vice presidential candidate, senator from North Carolina. Well, his career was as a plaintiff's trial lawyer. He was a big med mal lawyer down in North Carolina before he got into politics. And I remember when he became a vice president presidential candidate, all of these background stories came out about this guy. How did John Edwards get to be where he is, amass the fortune he had, that kind of thing. And I remember reading some articles where they talked to the defense lawyers where John Edwards had gotten these massive verdicts. And one of them was a birth injury case. And John Edwards used those fetal tracings to talk about how baby Joseph can't talk, can't cry. But those tracings, those are, that's him crying out, help me. I need out of here now. Something's not right. That is him trying to tell the doctors that he needs help or she needs help. And I use that in my closing. Listen, I'll tell you what that fetal tracing is. It's not just a squiggly line on a piece of paper. That is the baby trying to say, please, please, please help me. Get me out of here now. I can't breathe. I use that. I think it's a, a super effective argument. And you said, oh, everybody, because I'm always looking to, I mean, you know, what it was the saying, you know, we stand on the, the shoulders of giants and probably John Edwards got that from somebody else himself. And someone came up with it, but it's the baby speaking to the doctor crying out for help. I, I think it's highly effective. And um, I had not actually heard that before talking with you and Judge Ignelzi about your verdict and the closing and so forth. So Wrapping this up, John, how long was the deliberation? And then tell us the verdict amount and where did these numbers come from? We closed, finished, jury was charged and sent back for deliberations probably around 1.30, 2 in the afternoon. It's getting a little late in the day for me. I'm a little concerned. Jury, if they really want to go home, they can make a quick decision and deem me and go on with their lives. They deliberated for about two and a half hours. 
They stayed a little bit late, closer to like five, a little bit longer than what the judge was going to keep them. And we got a verdict in a fairly short amount of time. What I said to my client at that point was, I'm concerned that's too short to get through all the verdict interrogatories. I think we lost. So I said to my client, we went back into the courtroom and we got question number one, negligence. Yes. Question number two, causation. Yes. And at that point, I knew I had a verdict. The award was $16,100,000, something and change. It was $10 million to the parents for the loss of their baby. It was $1 million and some change, which was the exact number of my economic experts' opinion as to the economic loss of the work life for Lucy. I mean, let's give this baby a name. This, this baby that died, her name was Lucy. It's going to be Lucy. That was her economic loss. And then they gave $5 million to Lucy's pain and suffering in utero for the 16. So $15 million in non-economic damages and a million in economic. Obviously, that is, I mean, you had to have been bowled over by that verdict. I mean, I know you were there and it was obviously a magical trial. I mean, you had not one, but two just life of a career moments that happened in a trial. I mean, they don't happen that frequently. And you always remember when they did, you had two just ones you'll never forget. But notwithstanding everything you did, I mean, that was still, had to be a somewhat amazing, even to you verdict, right? Or no, John, did you, you weren't surprised at all by that? I told my client, I thought we lost. Yeah. And I meant it. I, yeah. said, I, I said, listen, that is too short for them to go through, decide those questions, decide damages. I think we lost. And I said that in part also because I've tried other cases where I thought the case went in wonderfully, couldn't have gone in better, and I've lost. Mm -hmm. So I've lived that experience before. I'm never shocked by losing a case because I thought I've tried wonderful cases before and came on the wrong end. So I was fully prepared for that. The damages were beyond greater than what I expected. Absolutely. Did the jurors speak with you? Did anybody tell you sort of why they felt so strongly about that verdict? Oh, don't get mad at me, Brendan, but um, I don't speak to jurors. I don't, I've given up on it myself too. So I'm with you now. That's fine. The only because I did speak to them early in my career. And when some of the feedback I would get would, I thought was going to drive me batty because <laughs> it was irrelevant or they focused on something that no was, that was not a non-issue in the case or it could be any reason. Right. If I lose and I'm not talking to them, I've reconciled with myself. If I win, I'm not talking with them. I think I know why I won the case. I had extremely good facts. My clients weren't like superstars, nor were they bad witnesses. It was a normal, normal couple. But I had really, really good facts. And I had defendants that were angry, combative, defiant, changing their testimony on the stand. And I think it angered the jury. I'm a big believer that sympathy isn't what gets you a bigger number for a jury. Anger gets you a bigger number. They were mad at those doctors for their treatment of my client. They were angry. And I think that's what happened. The defendants did not do that 180 when they took the stand that you described in your one case. They did not help themselves, in my estimation, and just made the case worse for themselves. And I think that's what made the number what it was. I mean, it's awesome. And, and you know, we'll wrap up by, I started at the beginning by saying that comment, you know, you're a trial lawyer's trial lawyer. And I say that because you were totally candid with me and Greg. And a lot of people, they don't want to talk about the cases that they've lost. You know, I've lost a ton of cases. And you shared with us that you'd 
taken some absolutely brutal losses in the past. And I think it's that stick-to-itiveness that you didn't give up, you continued going on because a lot of people, when you take those just soul-crushing losses, it's easy to say, you know what, I'm going to kind of back out of trying cases. I'm going to, you know, just uh, maybe not do that as much because you may not admit it to yourself, but it's some kind of uh, response mechanism, like your body or your mind can't, your heart can't take it. And you've had tons of victories in the past, but some of those losses are so brutal, but it was all worth it. I mean, you hung out there and you hung in there and then you continue to work your butt off and then you get into this kind of, again, just the stars aligned kind of case. And I would also just say that it, for people that I think don't practice maybe in our area or don't certainly don't practice in this area of law, your verdict was particularly wonderful for a lot of other people because you know probably better than we do, John, that you know in these type of cases, terrible medical care and a baby stillborn or dies right around the time of birth, there's been this sort of like, oh, those cases are worth X. Nobody's gotten a good verdict on that kind of a case. There's a, an assumed going rate for the death of a baby who hasn't been born yet. Yeah. As opposed to a baby that dies at three months or three days. That somehow the, a baby that did not breathe our air, isn't, her life isn't worth as much. That is, yeah. And it's maddening. And not only do you hear it from the defense lawyers and you hear it from the judges, you hear it from other plaintiff lawyers. Like that case isn't worth that much because, you know, no one's ever gotten that verdict. And here you literally shattered the ceiling on it and showed that in the right circumstances, something truly, I think, assessing the true value and loss. And yes, there's that anger component to it, but you showed what's possible, I think. And I think that's just uh, amazing on multiple different levels. And I really thank you for uh, sharing all this with us. I got a ton out of it. It's just awesome, man. Congratulations. Like I said, when we had lunch, you know, several months ago, I just couldn't be happier that you got this verdict. And uh, it's a big help to the rest of us. I'm reliant upon the success of my colleagues. Uh, and so the way I look at it is, I mean, it's, it's obviously my client is first, but um, if it contributes to the cause of us all being able to represent our clients better and get them more reasonable, adequate compensation, that is very important to me. And uh, you know, if I can make that contribution and give back to our profession, like others have done to my benefit, it makes me feel very content. Well, you were a real warrior, John, you know, especially going into an environment where you know, you're going up against doctors who just have this disdain for you and everything that you stand for and your clients. And sometimes, kid, uh, you feel like the whole world is against you and it could be difficult to muster that strength. So we thank you and I'm sure your clients will be eternally grateful for the strength that you've shown. And for anybody that wants to get a hold and uh, pick John's brain more or uh, refer him a case, you know, even though it's counter to us, you can get a hold of him by finding him at his uh, law firm, Og, Murphy, and Perkoski. I see the phone number is 412-207-3286. And John's just a wonderful person to get to know if you have an opportunity. John, again, thanks so much for doing this with us. It was uh, a huge help. Really enjoyed it. Brendan, Greg, uh, it was a, my pleasure. I guess I have one question. When you hit your next one, Brendan, which is going to be sometime in the near future, Who's the guest host that gets to interview you on your podcast? Well, it's poor Greg. <laughs> poor Greg gets stuck listening to uh, me talk more and more. So uh, 
we'll ask you. You maybe you can guest host me and Greg when we get our next uh, or when we ring the bell the next time. Guest host would be great. <laughs> we'll turn the tables. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, you're the man, John. Thank you. Hope to see you soon, John. Take care, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal in catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.